The only ultimate sign of love is betrayal, you know. It's not total fidelity. If you have a cause you fight for, it will never happen, this ideal revolutionary power during the night we screw like crazy, but at the same time we fight for, you know. I'm a pessimist here. The two dimensions cannot be brought together. So, and it's, inc you know why, and again, the condition of true love is in some sense not betrayal, I have sex with others, but betrayal in the sense of for betrayal for a cause. Slavoj Zizek, hello. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to speak to us. How are you? Are you okay? I'm grateful to you. Thank you. Uh, so you wrote recently that uh, Reddit, specifically Wall Street bets, had exposed the innate absurdity of the capitalist system, the, the nihilism of capitalism. Others have suggested that the, the redistribution of wealth and power away from the financial ruling class, sort of downwards to the middle class, represents this kind of democratization of financial information and that it's an important front of a class war. Um, would you agree? Yes, I see in what sense it's also meant to be a democratization. Uh, but uh, I that's my central point. I don't think that this model represented by Robin Hood and Wall Street bets, that this model can be effectively universalized so that, to cut a long story short, we will all be in the evening capitalists uh, 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 playing with stock market and so on and so on. I think uh, that uh, the problem is the way Wall Street bets functions, and this is what fascinates me, it doesn't deal when it triggers this avalanche, let's all invest into GameStop or whatever AMC now, it doesn't deal, it doesn't even analyze the real situation of the company, like do they have any promising products? Are they well? And so on and so on. It's pure self-reflexive speculation. In this sense, of course, it ruins the game because the point of Wall Street bets, it's not then to follow a company, to support it, it does well. It's pure speculation. You take a company which is doing relatively bad in decline, you trigger investments, it gets better. When it gets better, you try to sell before it will go down. It's all an extremely risky gambling. Now, personally, I like this, but uh, I mean, why not if you can afford it? But nonetheless, my point is that the whole system cannot function like this because what we get with Wall Street bets, it's more or less a total disconnection between real productive capital, and by this I don't mean in the old-fashioned Marxist way, miners or, or metal workers and so on, also information companies, whatever, but simply economically what happens in a company and uh, financial speculations. It's purely self-referation game, self-reference game. Second thing that I find it's crucial, it's, uh, and that's again the charm of it for me, that you know that the official Wall Street and so on stock exchange has its own 
rules, how you invest safely, you have to know what are the prospects of a company and so on and so on. And Wall Street bets, they proudly display their non-knowledge. They totally ignore this dimension. Uh, so I, I like this role of non-knowledge. No, it's pure self-referential speculation, uh, and as such, it disturbs the market. Because, again, it triggers this, with regard to real productivity, irrational uh, oscillations up and down, and so on and so on. So it turns market exchange into gambling. But the logical mistake of it, as I wrote in the text you kindly referred to, I think is that it, as I put it with a reference to a Croat actor, I even know him, he's a wonderful guy, who in the last presidential elections in Zagreb, in Croatia, uh, 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 started a campaign to become president and his slogan was corruption for all. Why should corruption be just a privilege of a few, the elite? I promise you corruption for all. Well, corruption for all is logically impossible. So, uh, because then, you know, like, it cannot work. If you have corruption, it must be at the expense of, some, uh, of uh, somebody else. So I think that this model, although it's almost a beautiful dream of all of us, during the day, if we are not jobless, we work in the evening, each of us speculates and so on. Uh, this model is inoperative, I claim. It has to lead to chaos. Does this mean, now comes my point, that we should return to the old-fashioned, uh, like, uh, uh, more rational, apparently rational capitalism? No, that's my pessimism. The only way out is, would have been, but it's too much a revolution for us in the West, the Chinese way that state simply has the absolute authority. When something like this happens, state can, can suspend stock market exchanges with a certain company, it can close the stock market, uh, all and so on and so on. That's what they are doing in China. But I think if we, but sorry, in China they can do it because you have an unquestionable authority, the Communist Party, which simply can do it. With us, I claim, it's not, uh, it's not possible. If we wanted to do it, it would have meant such a social economic transformation of our society, it's out of the question. So this is not possible. Another variant, but it's also a dream, would have been, this is my private capitalist social democratic dream to keep the market but to uh, but to uh, to uh, install a program which some algorithm which would do all the investment when to buy when to sell for us algorithm would be doing everything because then the next logical step is if we have on the stock market just a conflict of algorithms, you can certainly do a kind of a mega algorithm which would coordinate the game of different algorithms for the profit of our 
society. So, stock market can be disindividualized. You have just algorithms playing with each other, and why shouldn't state, society, or whoever then own them? I mean, or to put it in another way, what interests me with Wall Street bets is that, uh, <coughs> sorry, they are for me a counter phenomenon to something that was going on, I think, for over a year, some two years on Wall Street. Some two amateurs, they are the true heroes for me. I don't know what was the name of that app, but they offered a couple, I think, a lady and a man, a gentleman. They offered a free algorithm, which, if you invest some money, will do stock exchange for you, buying, selling, buying options, and so on, which is, they demonstrated it, on average, better than what your Wall Street uh, uh, traders will do for you. So you do nothing. You put into this algorithm, I don't know, 10,000 pounds, and algorithm does everything for you. Yeah, but it works. You know what's the shock? That Wall Street was, this, this Wall Street bets is a second panic. The first panic was with this free algorithm, which it was demonstrated, again, on average, it does better job than your stock traders. It plays no uh, psychological games. It just follows the rule of the market. But this is almost the opposite of the Wall Street bets, you know, because uh, this uh, free algorithm is still, under quotation marks, rational. It simply follows the laws of the market and does the best investment. But what Wall Street bets are doing is they are consciously introducing chaos because they are not interested in long-term profit. They want to earn through panic, quick speculations, and so on and so on. So these are two opposites. It's a nice dialectical opposition for me almost. On the one hand, total algorithm. Market works by its own. Who needs stock traders? You know. And on the opposite, this pure subjective element of speculation, where the rule of the game is precisely that you violate the established rules and introduce panic, panic buying, panic, sell, panic selling, and then you try to profit with this. And I think these two options for me are in the long term, nothing will happen now, probably. Again, another of these uh, uh, bells which signal their sound, the potential final crisis, I'm very bombastic Marxist now, of capitalism. Because this is where the movement spontaneously goes. On the one hand, again, total algorithmization, Men are not needed, but this is for me already in a perverse way the first step towards some kind of a socialism, you know. Because again, if you play the game of the algorithms to the end, you can leave everything to the machines and it doesn't even matter who owns then the program. The only thing that matters is that algorithm works and creates to the relatively not so much just as productive uh, productive uh, placement on investments. But on the opposite side, pure subjectivity explodes. No? 
in this sense of, uh, of again, consciously breaking the rules, creating panic. And I don't think in the long term there is a way out of it, except the Chinese one. But we are not so far from that because not only the, the great old crisis, the big uh, depression of 28 and so on later, but even remember 2008 financial meltdown. State had to intervene with enormous sums of money, trillions of dollars. They had to be provided, as we know, in the last days of Bush presidency in a day, uh, 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 in a day or two. It was at some point even the matter of hours. So uh, I think we should be aware what this demonstrates is how deeply free market already today, how it needs the state. Without state regulations, it would have self-destroyed itself. But what interests me, this in Wall Street bets, this touches my Hegelian side, paradoxical side, is that, isn't this crazy, how uh, uh, what Wall Street bets are doing is, it's established now, they are not breaking any laws directly. They are doing what you should be, it's legal for you to do if you want. But what they do is nonetheless something that the official stock exchange investors and so on, they should not be allowed to do things like this. So for me, but as a small private uh, guy who play on the stock market, you are allowed to this. So the problem for me is this one, that it's as if, the big criminals are prosecuting small guys who are doing openly and in a legal way what they are doing in an, in an, uh, in an illegal way. No, but sorry, so, sorry, just to conclude. So my problem is just this one, that, uh, that in the short term, of course, uh, it will be possible to deal with this and so on and so on. I just don't think that, again, as long as we remain within the stock exchange system, that it can be universalized. I think it necessarily had to finish in a chaos because you know what's the problem? You can justify it in a more complex way. The problem is that uh, uh, traditional market theorists claim that, okay, disturbances are good, even occasional crises, because then through a crisis, some balance is re-established, normality. But with Wall Street bets, the problem is that the chaos they cause did not emerge because of some traditional market imbalances, like that a certain company value of it of this company was too high and so on, so that then you can correct it. No, it was a totally self-referential, self-created crisis, which has no imminent mechanism to lead to balance. At the end of this is chaos. And that's why I salute this event, because I think it should remember us, recall to us, made us make us aware of the, I don't mean in any dark sense, irrationality, but of this, they, rather than irrationality, use the term self-destructive potential of the market. So the only 
solution or alternative solution for me is a Chinese way strong state control over it and it has its advantages I spoke recently with a Chinese friend of mine who is a dissident there half dissident okay not yet in the prison and he told me something very interesting he told me you know what's the great advantage of the Chinese system that because of our free elections and so on it's very difficult in our countries you can do it but marginally to establish a long-term social program how should society develop no you mainly worry will i be re-elected in two in four years or whatever while in China, there are no doubts if there is not a total social revolution, who will remain in power. Which is why this stability enables China to engage into more of a long-term planning. What Chinese are now doing, they don't worry, what if we lose elections in three years or what? They look at the global trends and their goal is very clear. Their final term is, in sense of calendar, is 2050. How should we steer Chinese economy so that we will be on the top at that level? And you know what's so interesting to see? That the countries which are exploding today have something of the same. For example, South Korea. It exploded because they had in the 60s the dictatorship, relatively enlightened general, make coup d'etat and was able to do this time of long-term planning. It's the same in Singapore or it's the same also in some democratic countries where there is enough of uh, social trust and uh, mutual respect so that the main agents can engage in such uh, global social planning. That's how my friends, leftists, explained to me Norway. When welfare state got into a crisis, they convoke a big meeting of trade unions, banks, business representatives, and so on, and establish a very rational plan. Okay, maybe we sacrifice a little bit of this in welfare, but the goal was to maintain welfare state and social stability, and it works. That's, I think, the mystery of this a relatively more successful Scandinavian democracies. They have an incredible sense of community and communal planning, which is why in their case, the result of elections doesn't really mean a big deal. Okay, if there are right-wingers, you curb a little bit the right of the immigrants, you are not so fanatical about uh, what we should be, about sexual harassment and so on. But the global orientation of society remains the same, which is why, back to our actuality, I think in the long term, it is not good what is now happening to model cases in United Kingdom and in United States. I'm now not talking as a radical leftist, but almost as a, the one interested just in relative welfare and against chaos. Don't you think that such a division of social space that we now have in the UK, but especially in the United States, where they are now de facto close to uh, some kind of a 
civil war, elements even of a real civil war, this is a catastrophe. In such conditions, you cannot build a long-term coalition. Now, does this mean that I agree with uh, those compromised Republicans who don't want to, to be too harsh on Trump followers claiming, no, we need national unity? No. The problem with people like Trump is that their modus operandi is division. That's the paradox. You cannot build this type of coalition with them. You know, that's the irony. Trump talks about division, but whenever, sorry, about, yes, we need the unity, patriotic and so on, but his very ontological status, as it were, is one of radical division. And in the long term, this doesn't function. So, Slavoj. I don't know what will happen. Sorry, I talked too much. Yeah, we've, got an ta- we've got on a tangent, and I do want to come back to the United States and the United Kingdom if we have time. But I just wanted, on this idea of this explosion of subjectivity and the chaos uh, sort of side of things that you were, you were talking about in terms of Wall Street bets and whether it actually yeah. offers a real challenge to sort of the orthodoxy and capitalism. And I just, I wanted to bring that back to, to talk about that sort of in the context. Yes, sorry, but also to the traditional left, you know, yes, everybody yes, is at yes, a loss here. Yes, absolutely. And I just wanted to talk about that in the sorry, context of um, Marcuse from the Adorno school and his idea of repressive desublimation that... Ah, yeah, Herbert Marcuse, the old yes, guy, yeah. That instead of, you know, instead of subverting the financial system, you know, the challenge to the head fund, hedge funds is essentially rendered meaningless because of its over-identification with the system. Its social critique has no power because because it's being commodified. What what, what do you you think of it in in that respect? Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, now I simplify, Marcuse. All I'm saying is that there is, yes, a long tendency in the left to claim that uh, subversion is... uh, always already integrated and so on and so on. And I think that the saddest aspect of what you are saying now, of this integration of subversion, if you ask me, it's comical. It's for me, uh, uh, the new, whatever you call it, alt-right, Trump is populist and so on. Why? Because I don't know if you had any friends. I had friends who were, of course, we were all like fascinated, uh, Spellbound, uh, watching that uh, the the crowd penetrating the uh, the Congress building, no. Yeah. And I wonder if you had any friends. Many of my friends phoned me and told me, "My God, we should do this, not them. The left should do this." <laughs> they recognize themselves, recognize themselves in that. You know, like isn't this the classical way of storming the Bastille? Of you know. We thought this is no longer possible. The crowd directly penetrating the seat of power. Now, I have some problems with this. Maybe you know an old joke or text of mine. Did you, so we all did, my generation, maybe you're already too young, the movie uh, V for Vendetta. Yeah, love it. You know where at the end the crowd penetrates the British Parliament. It's freedom, no? Yes. And my usual phrase is, what would I have given, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery, tasteless style of mine, <laughs> if somebody would have shot the movie V for Vendetta Part 2. What happens the day after, you know? 
What will this, will they proclaim end of representative democracy? What? Okay, the crowd occupies the parliament. But wait a minute, the daily life of our society needs literally thousands of big, small institutions, police, this, that. What will the crowd do there? How will they run things? They would have to do some kind of they would have to begin with some kind of a dictatorship because in that crazy state you cannot say let's do new elections and allow chaos till that point. So we will have to have some kind of emergency committee. What will it do? At that point, conflicts begin. So I'm more and more, I think that, and this is for me, even for some leftists among them, me, the sad message of what went on Capitol. First, I claim, as I wrote in another text, maybe some of our listeners know it, uh, it wasn't, I think, really a coup d'etat. It was a carnival, you know. It was enacted like a carnival. Because they didn't behave protesters like revolutionaries. Uh, nobody seriously stopped them there after they did what they wanted. The protesters, you know, they mostly simply, they were not defeated. They walked out and returned to their, usually even four-star hotels, to have a drink and debate what they achieved and so on and so on. It wasn't that. The problem is that maybe in the second round it may get harsher, you know. But uh, what I want to say is that uh, what if, that's my suspicion, I don't believe, I think the right wing, I don't believe in the efficiency of this. The crowd attacks the seat of power. This can provide nice uh, sentimental moments. Oh my God, we scared those in power. But I can imagine those really in power just standing back, back and observing it with an ironic, cynical smile. And they just wait for the day after. What fascinates me more and more is, what do you do when you gain power? What new mechanisms do you have? What interests me is everyday life. For me, revolution is not a big crowd penetrates the establishment or its symbolic places. For me, the big moment is everyday life. How do ordinary people feel the difference and so on and so on. So here I, uh, I agree with the one who is not very well liked by the left, but I appreciate her very much, Angela Negle, you know, in her yeah. Kill the Normies, where she claims that the tragedy today is that what was 30, 40 years, for example, when I was young, the modus operandi of the radical left, disrespect of power, obscenities, public provocations, and so on, is now appropriated by the old right, more than by Black Lives Matter and so on. They don't do such things, really. The violent, obscene agent is now the old right. So, I have here a solution which is crazy for many people. I think that the left should do something that Bernie Sanders was doing. Address ordinary people and even youth shamelessly all the rhetoric of uh, moral majority, common decency, and so on and so on. 
I think that up to a point, this was even, if he was aware or not, the game of Jeremiah Corbyn. He basically succeeded, I claim, with his image. This was a strong part of his success when it looked good for him. His image of an ordinary, decent guy. The new left should no longer play these subversive games. I agree with Marcuse. This games are uh, this strategy is now not only immediately appropriated but even uh, used much better by the new right. The left should address ordinary people. Should become a voice of moderation, modesty. Our message to ordinary people should be. If you want to retain ordinary life, to live a peaceful, satisfying life without too great crisis and so on, in the long term, only we, the left, can do it. And that's what Bernie Sanders is doing. His miracle is that his voters in Vermont are, as he once put it, People who would otherwise have voted for Trump, not for moderate centrist Democrats, you know. So we are in the middle. Of, sorry, I talked too much. No, it's fine. That's quite. I, that, I should expect it, but that's quite. That's quite a Hegelian paradox, isn't it, Slavoj? That the left should adopt conservatism. Yeah, but isn't it real? Isn't it real, real life? I don't believe that the left has a perspective to succeed either with this radical. Minority claims, of course, we should protect LGBT uh, and all that stuff, you know, but not in the way we were doing it. You know what is a big shock for me? Sorry if I'm repeating often this point. You remember the summer of, I think, 2016, when it was clear that Trump will be the, pres the Republican presidential candidate. What was the liberal left doing for a couple of weeks, the big topic on the head of daily newspapers, big media was that LGBT plus problem of toilets. Where are the toilets for LGBT plus? Should be universalized toilets, just one type of toilet, should we have different categories? Now, this is a serious problem, I know, but uh, you cannot win the elections in this way. The problem is to present LGBT plus topic to the ordinary people with whom, with whose majority you gain in a totally different way, not in this aggressive way where you consciously adopt a provocative stance, which if you want to do it or not, you provoke the uh, majority. Because, you know, the problem with the old radical left is that it was consciously provoking from one extreme to the other. I am now much more for a moderate left, moderate not in the sense that we abandon any of our uh, radical points, but that uh, we should again address concerns of the ordinary people uh, even. I even think that we should reassert the topic of law and order. When Trump says law and order, 
Our reply to him should not be, no, we have the right to our subversive acts. Our reply to him should be, but what is the greatest subversion of law and order? It's uh, violence against the blacks. Why? Because if a criminal violates law and order, it's in some sense understandable, you know, that's what criminals are. But isn't the highest obscenity when law and order forces themselves violate law and order, like policemen uh, excessively, in their excessive violence, even murdering black people, and so on and so on. So that would be my change. No, we should be the party of true law and order. As it was clear on what happened uh, uh, with uh, on the Capitol and with all this radical wing of Trumpist Republicans, they are the force which destabilizes law and order. It's crucial to get this point. Let's not compete with the new right who will be more subversive at this level, you know. Sorry, Dr. Yes. Mark. No, no, it's fine. Me. It's fine. No, it's good. Um, my, so my next question, I want to move on because I'm conscious of time. Um, my next question is a broad and controversial one. But in your view, is yeah. the world overpopulated? And I ask that in the context of coronavirus, that human, human destruction of animal habitat increases the risk of transmission of disease from animals to humans, increasing human population density, exaggerates human to human disease transmission. So is, is the answer to sort of this problem and the pandemic that we're seeing that, that perhaps necessarily there are too many people on the planet? I don't know. Here you will now get the pragmatic aspect of me, you know, because I simply don't think that I know enough about this. I heard, I read serious analysis which claim that if we will be able to contain our addiction to meat and milk and develop in a more, you know, plant, uh, uh, not meat, sustainable, whatever. Yes, sustainable, then there is no objective limit. The world uh, can even deal with more uh, people. And I think if you look at long-term trends, I think... We already, this is the horrible fashionable term with when we read analysis of COVID, we reached the plateau already. I don't think the explosion of population is a problem today. What is much more interesting is how the growing population is distributed, like in the developed Western Europe. Population is falling. It's only because of the immigrants that they remain at the same level. In Russia, in the last 20, 30 years, I think the population diminished because they didn't have many immigrants. It diminished. They are now only 130 or something like that, a little bit more more uh, millions. As for uh, habitat, natural balance, and so on, I don't believe in natural balance. I think that nature is destroying its own balance all the time. And I would much more worry than about the number of the people. I would much more worry about uh, deeper changes that we human introduced into nature. I quoted somewhere, I think Mike Davis, who demonstrated, it really shocked me. 
Atlantic, like, for example, when we had these uh, forest fires, bushfires that we had in Australia, in the west of the United States, and so on, we automatically assume, okay, the fire is over, uh, uh, and it, forest will simply reemerge. New, new plants will grow. Yes, but you know what? Uh, what studies show that the new plants which grow are not the same as before. Other more invasive new plants, new plants and so on, new vegetation occupies the space, and they then make life non-sustainable for previous for animals who were there before. So new animals tend to intervene. So uh, it's not just that things are in nature falling apart. It's in some. I mean. Uh, 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 forests disappearing, whatever you want. It's even problematic if forests are really disappearing, you know. Uh, the problem is rather these immense changes which will contribute to global warming, change the whole atmosphere and so on, and make it difficult for us. That's why I, I claim it's a little bit hypocritical when I read some green people who claim uh, we should take care of the mother nature, not destroy the planet. Don't worry for the mother nature. It will recreate itself. The problem is that it will be hard for us humans to find a place in this new natural order. You know, because we humans can live, can only survive in very specific environmental uh, conditions. So my first motto, slogan of a le proper leftist uh, ecology is for me the same as with Corona. No, nature is a historical category, not in the old George Lucas Marxist sense, but in the sense that uh, not only do we humans radically intervene in nature. For example, I recently read, it good to know, that more, much more than half of the mammals today in the world are mammals grown by humanity, cows, sheep, and so on. We are already, with our productivity, part of our temporary natural balance. And there will be radical changes here. There is no way back. We are approaching a very risky period, I think. Yes, in the, and in the context of what you've just said, I think that's that's really important because the source of that last question I asked you was a piece by uh, John Gray in the New Statesman. And in that piece, I think it's a similar conclusion to the one you've just drawn. He asserted that the pandemic has sort of burst the bubble of human supremacy. And we've sort of realised the balance of power and that really we are just tenants, you know, renting this world. Uh, he said in the world of the microbes, he said that the world belonged to the microbes. Do, do, do you agree with that premise? I think you do, judging by what you just answered. Uh, yeah, although, you know, the irony that uh, John Gray, to cut a long story short, seems to really hate me, you know. He wrote in a New, New York Review of Books a text against me when he proclaimed me advocate of new Holocaust, uh, totalitarian, uh, destructive, and so on, and so on. You know where I maybe disagree with this point? Uh, 
at a level which is even, in a sense, existential psychological. Yes, what you just told me is, in some sense, the usual moral lesson from the pandemic. You know, we disturbed the balance, the viruses took revenge of us, although I would go further here, I would say that the two uses of the word virus today, virus in uh, chemobiological sense, pandemic and so on, and virus in the computer sense, you know, that these two meanings are interconnected, that our minds are already in some sense controlled by mental viruses. You know, recent cognitive theorists like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, they literally use the term virus or mem. Mem is a virus, Dawkins says it, to explain how human mind is functioning, that our minds are just elements or places for the self-reproduction of mems, of mental viruses. So we should change our entire approach. But you know what interests me here? That uh, now comes, maybe I hope it will not be too difficult, but the philosophical point. This is what always fascinated me. That, again, the usual lesson is viruses uh, are kind of a, a revenge of nature. We should remember the lesson of the pandemic is our finitude and mortality. We are one species on the world. We disturb its balance too much. So we should remember our, again, our finitude. At the end, there is death, our modest place. We are exposed to total natural contingencies, not contingencies in the sense that in themselves, they don't obey a natural necessity. Virus, of course, obeys a natural necessity. But from our human standpoint, it's contingency. It just exploded, although again, under certain social conditions. But what I would say here, it's a subtle change of accent, is that isn't the true horror of a virus that it is a self-reproducing mechanism which is exactly in itself, exactly the opposite, this is what you already said before, I think, or exactly the opposite of our human mortality and sexuality. It's a blind self-reproductive mechanism. It is undead. It's, if you want to imagine a human virus as a human being, it would have been something like zombies or the undead. They just b blindly insist and reproduce themselves. So my answer is this one. You know, next week, I hope it will somewhere appear, I wrote, this may be a shock for you, but I would like to uh, share it with you and our viewers. You know, the German hard rock band Rammstein. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they had a beautiful song called Dalai Lama about, uh, okay, it's a complex, para nothing to do with Dalai Lama, just father and the son in a plane which is shaking down and, uh, and at the end the son dies, but how does the son die? So that his father wants to protect him and presses him with his hand so much that he <laughs> strangles his own son. But there, as a 
refrain, light motive of the song, there is a wonderful line, uh, uh, wir müssen leben bis wir sterben. We have to live till we die. I think that's our problem here. Not, it's not finitude death, it's how to live, how to fully live under the shadow of the pandemic. Because one solution is, two extremes are, we have here, one solution is the Trumpist common sense protesters against lockdown, try to ignore it, uh, 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 this is ruining our normal everyday life, Try, let's try to retain our dignity. George Angamben even went so far, he, he went so far as to even claim, even if we all die, we should retain our social way of life. So ignore it. On the opposite end, there are those who are fascinated by death. You know, like, oh my God, now we are aware we will all die and so on and so on. But Rammstein, I think, demonstrate, indicate a third solution. Isn't the problem, most of us will not die. And the problem is not that at the end we will die. We know this. The problem is how to live in this knowledge that our lives are threatened and how to fully live in these conditions. And I'm terribly sorry to take the sentimental example. You know, all the healthcare nurses, workers, and so on. Aren't they a model of how you fully live? in these conditions. They risk their lives daily. The mortality rate of healthcare people is the highest today. But they didn't choose depression, which most of us have. This depression, which is already mixed with some kind of a fascination with death. You know, like do I notice in very many of these reports, humanity as Hollywood catastrophe movies demonstrate was always fascinated with witnessing the spectacle of its own disintegration. That's why today, here I'm a pessimist. Did you notice how in the first wave in Europe, other parts of the world, they have a different rhythm. In Europe, the first wave of pandemic, it was only a kind of a healthy panic, you know. Oh, we must take care, we shouldn't die, blah, blah. But now it's something much more obscure. We are, we, many of us decided to ignore, even if the numbers are much higher, we try to go on with our daily life. At the same time, we don't see a clear way out perspective, there is depression. Depression is not the same as oppression. Oppression is a higher force oppresses you. Depression, depression is, you can do what you want, but you, you lose the will to do it. You lose your desire. And that's what I see even with people, friends of mine, who try to go on as normal, enjoy it fully, but there is always some despair behind enjoyment. So the problem today is not be aware of death. The problem is, again, as Rammstein put it, yes, we will die, but till we die, we have to live fully. And I think the name of this game today is simply do your duty socially and so on, Aren't again healthcare workers, and I'm also like they disgusted with this, their public celebration, while they didn't uh, raise their, uh, their salaries a lot, you know. What does it help you then if you have even plane parades or whatever for healthcare workers? But this is the attitude. I know what I must do. I don't care if I die. 
they nurses and all those ordinary people they are those who are most alive today they fully live in this condition so again the problem for me is how to be fully alive in these conditions and options are open here again it's not either we ignore it like agambian advises not totally ignore it but basically we don't allow pandemic to affect our way of life or it's a kind of a deep depression you don't know what to do no today is the time to be really alive yeah i think there's there's such an interesting point there particularly in western society where sort of modern medicine has meant that there isn't really infant mortality is essentially no longer exists and there hasn't been mass mobilization warfare and in a way our societies have become really actually quite disconnected from death but i i do want to move on because of the interest of time and i want to pick up on this point you made earlier about memes and sort of what what will be the consequences of the exaggerated mass media consumption that we've seen during the isolation and our lockdowns do you think it's possible that our society is experiencing you know cultural saturation or as a result of the lockdowns and isolation that there will actually be instead this kind of blossoming of new forms, genres and ideas when society reopens? Uh, first, I don't think society will reopen in the old way. I think society will have to change. That's why, as I always repeat this point, it's not true that we are now at a standstill, let the, med well, let the medicine and so on do their, or science do their job. No, we live in an eminently political moment, the fight is already going on for what new society uh, will emerge. As what you said about mass media, yes, we know the story that there is no longer one big public space. And that's the tragedy, you know, in the old times, there was a strict distinction between these private chats and so on and going public. Now, a new domain is emerging, like uh, uh, tweeting, Facebook, and so on, which is not private, but also not public space in the old sense. And uh, this, of course, is a problem, but I wouldn't be such a pessimist here. Yes, the dark option that you described is one of the options, but don't forget that the same uh, mass media, in the sense of uh, uh, Facebook, uh, Google, in, uh, uh, generally Internet and so on, also open up the space for new social mobilizations, which is why, as we saw in Myanmar, ex-Burma today, and also in other countries, when things get close to the social upheaval, the first thing those in power do is block this media yes it's a it's not also a question of post truth i don't in the sense that now you have plurality of truth and so on nobody because you know i don't think that before this pluralization of opinions through mass media what did we live in an era of truth no i mean if you look in the 1950s cold war we had two predominant ideologies. And I don't think that any of the two was 
in some sense really true. They were just two big hegemonic lies. I'm not now, I'm not a postmodernist. I'm not advocating that there are only uh, different, uh, differently efficient uh, uh, lies and so on and so on. What I'm just saying is what Julian Assange was always saying. That uh, and the, his work here is more important, I think, than his leaking the documents. That, uh, namely, that the battle for this new mass media, internet, Facebook, and so on, is the crucial battle today. Who controls the information, not just directly, in the sense that it can censor information, but also who... Uh, 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 who can, through artificial manipulation, influence the media, but it's not a battle lost. The proof is that those in power are clearly in panic, not only in totalitarian countries like China and so on, but also in, but also in Western countries. You know where I didn't have any sympathy for Trump there, but I was a little bit shocked. You remember when was this, two, three weeks ago, we learned that Trump is excluded from the gang of four of mass media, Google, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and I don't know which is, uh, 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 tweet, yes, Twitter. For, uh, and people said, finally, we get rid of these lies. Yes, but what worried me is this. No, there should be a healthy censorship here. But nonetheless, don't you agree that it was a little bit strange that when they said Facebook disconnected Trump, who is Facebook? Did they have some ethical committee or what there? It was in a totally non-transparent way. To put it in old Marxist term, the problem is that we have today what Marx couldn't imagine. A privatization of commons, tweet, tweeting, uh, Facebook, Google. These are our commons, or internet also, of course. Now that the two of us communicate, never forget that we communicate through a medium which is privately owned. So our commons themselves, commons in the sense of common space mechanisms and so on through which we communicate are privately owned. So I'm not against control. I just claim control should be made it clear. There should be some kind of socialization here. It should be transparent who decides. Again, does Facebook have or Google, do they have, a, do they have some committee of psychologists, intellectuals, I don't know who decides this is too much. No, it was totally left in dark. Google did it. Facebook did it. Who did it? How? Here I see more the danger. Not that any idiot can voice his opinion on Earth. On, on, uh, on, on, in the new media, but who then controls this media? So again, here I am for Assange. Yes, so um, I know certainly in, in the case of uh, Facebook, they, they do have a committee. Uh, they have an oversight board. Um, there's people on it like journalists. So for example, uh, Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The Guardian, uh, he's on it. There's other sort of, you know, experts and they do kind of make those decisions. Um, but I don't know sort of the transparency around yeah, that. But we should know. Yeah, who did, I know, I know this. Yes, I heard this. Yes, Facebook, the exception. But, but uh, nonetheless, uh, look at 
Facebook. Didn't Zuckerberg even meet with Trump and negotiated and so on? It's The game is more obscure. Also, with these uh, journalists, uh, again, who elects them, how do they operate these committees? It's a it's much more non-transparent, dark game, I think. But I agree with you. We should just, uh, like, my basic point is this one. Yes, at some level, we should be controlled to prevent open sexism, racism, and so on. But the control itself should be much more uh, transparent. Uh, no, yes, agree. So in terms of, um, in terms of film, and television. What have you been watching during the pandemic? Apart from the problems with my cataract and so on, I don't watch a lot. Uh, I was just catching up, as most of the people that I know did, uh, with the old series. For example, I was pleasantly surprised by Homeland. It has eight seasons, the last four seasons. They are not simple CIA propaganda or whatever. They get very dark, and I was quite fascinated by the finale of by by the finale of Homeland, where at the end the main heroine agent Carrie ends up in a very ambiguous way in Russia, living together with her former competitor KGB or whatever their new name is now couple. But at the same time, we learn. This is the very end of the series that she, she didn't really betray United States because she, in a, through a secret channel, she brings news to her mentor in CIA. Uh, so that is to say what fascinated me here, and I think this is a certain formula of successful sexual relationship. It's not that she cheats her KGB love partner, she doesn't sacrifice herself, her sex private life for the American cause, but she enjoys this very radical ambiguity. Her position is, I can only live happily with a guy, happily in all senses, sexual partnership, sharing daily life, if at the same time I betray him. And you know who said this in one of his novels, I think, uh, The Perfect Spy? I think it's his last really good novel, John Le Carré. You have the sentence that I quote there that uh, the only ultimate sign of love is betrayal. You know, it's not total fidelity. If you have a cause you fight for, it will never happen, this ideal revolutionary power during the night we screw like crazy, but at the same time we fight for, you know. I'm a pessimist here. The two dimensions cannot be brought together so, and it's, inc you know why, and again, the condition of true love is in some sense not betrayal, I have sex with others, but betrayal in the sense of, for betrayal for a cause. And you know why I like Homeland, the finale? Because this, now one would have thought, yes, women are more sentimental, only a man can do this, you know, not be totally in love, but have a, separate domain of his cause. No, a woman does this there, you know. I think it's very deep insight into feminine sexuality. So you see, things like this I'm doing. I'm still corrupted enough, theoretically, 
that I cannot, this is prohibited for me, I'm a madman, I cannot simply enjoy a series, you know, just for fun. No, I feel guilty, I'm a Protestant. If I cannot draw any theoretical conclusion, then I feel guilty. There must be something in the series that triggers my mechanism, you know. Yeah, yeah, you have, so I must you say, I did a lot yeah. of this. And of course, as I already wrote in my first pandemic book, I, I like this dark Scandinavian like uh, 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 crime miniseries, you know. Especially Island is now the new force there, you know. They had some like uh, like uh, 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 Valhalla, uh, Valhalla fear or whatever. A, a couple of TV series. That's what I do. To that's the paradox to escape our reality. But as all escapes, it should be an escape not into a happy ha happy world, but an escape into an even more terrifying world. You know, the only thing that can save us is. Maniacs, mass murderers, triple spy games, and so on. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. If you touch this, you know where I am a pessimist. Okay, even if this will drag on the crisis, but did you notice the gradual, here you see the depression that I'm talking about, the gradual change in temporality. How, do you remember those old times, one year ago, a little bit less, when the temporality of the pandemic was, the main signifier was two weeks. The message of those in power, more or less in all countries was, for next two weeks it will be harsh, then it will get better. It was 14 days, you know. Then in the summer or when it began, began again in the fall, it became two months. Two months it will be harsh, then it will be better. Now we are, in spite of the vaccine and so on, we are at half a year. No, now they are saying maybe summer, probably fall. No, and some of them are already moving into the domain of years. You know, like 22, maybe even 2023, it will be better. You know. Yeah, so this is what I find uh, yeah. a, a little bit ominous, this uh, general, which is why, again, somehow we survive COVID. Now we'll say something horrible, but imagine a total catastrophe. What does it mean? It's horrible what I'm saying now. I, I'm like leaving Stalin, but not more than 20, 30 million people will probably die. You know, with all the horror, now we are at two millions and a half. From the standpoint of humanity, will survive. But imagine when the economic crisis consequences will really hit, probably this spring, summer. And imagine uh, young people not going to school. Uh, mental crises are exploding. Number of suicides and so on. I think that, uh, as some of my friends from Latin America told me, if in the first wave the problem was simply illness, how to protect ourselves, it will slowly grow into economic problems, social protests, and so on, the consequence 
of the pandemic and ultimately if you ask me it will be the mental crisis how to not regain but construct some new normality and this is for me the most dangerous part yeah i'm i'm inclined to agree with you slavoj i know you're busy so i'm just going to ask you uh, one more question and i'll let you go and i'll let you go um but okay uh, re- one more question. No, because we started later, so I owe this to you. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. That, okay, I appreciate it. Yeah. So one, one last question. No, no, about- I'm a fanatical. You know, in my deeper nature, I am a fascist partisan of order. You know, if yeah. I promised you one hour, it means one pure hour plus five minutes and so on. You know, <laughs> I hate people. You know, which is my favorite personal motto. Lacan quote somewhere this joke. My fiancé is, you may know it, my fiancé never misses an appointment with me because if she is late, she is no longer my fiancé. <laughs> That's my formula. But, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so um, a recently leaked document um, in the UK revealed that the Labour Party um, was trying to rehabilitate its image and it made reference to making use of the flag and veterans and it, it and it poses this question of whether patriotism and so you mean this patriotic term yes yes so it poses the question of whether patriotism and socialism are compatible do you think they are and if so how well uh, i would say that uh, oh, <laughs> At some basic level of cultural identity, I absolutely don't think that patriotism is bad. Because, uh, uh, for example, when white people claim white American racist, we are thwarted by too strong influence of blacks, of Chinese, of other influences. I, I agree with them, but in the opposite way of what they think. I think that this proves that their culture is impotent and weak. I think that if you have a strong self-reliance and trust in your own culture, then you don't need xenophobia. You trust your culture, you know. Angela Merkel, whom I not, don't idealize, gave once in an interview, I think, such an answer. She said, I'm a German patriot. I think we have a very good culture. That's why we can afford immigrants, you know. True patriotism is not necessarily connected with racism. Racism is for me always a sign of the weakness of your patriotism. You need an enemy because you don't trust uh, yourself. I think those who are obsessed by immigration are secretly aware of the weakness of their own culture. But more basically, (coughs) I am afraid that today, really, at the level of economics, healthcare, and so on, today's world needs more unity. Is, Is it not becoming clear what specialists are telling us for a year already, that uh, we cannot have isolated islands, maybe if you are in New Zealand, but even there, things can happen at any point where you will protect yourself. The pandemic is a problem which will have to be approached in a global way. I think that a sane egotist thinking tells you today that not 
we should take care also of the others, but we should take care of the others to save ourselves. And not to even mention uh, possible catastrophes from uh, global warming, which I think will force us sooner or later to make large population uh, displacements and so on. This can only be done to stronger international, uh, to stronger international cooperation. We need it economically at the level of healthcare, at the level of security and so on. We need it more than ever. But I don't think there is a contradiction here. Today's patriotism for me means we are proud of ourselves, we are strong, that's why we are ready to help you. Not you threaten us and so on and so on. That's for me the true patriotism, my God, you know. Yeah, I do. Germany, um, I like it today because they knew, they knew, they're very well aware of the dangers of false patriotism. My God, Hitler was there, you know. And that's why I think they shouldn't be afraid of a little bit of patriotism, patriotism, sorry, Germans, you know. Again, show me a country which plays the patriot game, this racist bad one, and which is not weak in itself. Trump's made America great again was, I think, a purely defensive measure, sign of weakness. Yes, I would almost have said America should make itself great again against the threat of Trump and so on, you know. But you raised an extremely important point because some of the left think that Patriotism as such, loving your country, is in itself proto-fascist, bad, and so on and so on. I say no, no danger in healthy patriotism. Again, I repeat it for the third time. It means you trust yourself, you are not afraid of others. You are ready to help them, it makes you proud to help them, and so on. Slavoj Zizek, uh, we've covered so much there. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. I really appreciate it. I hope it will be of some use because, again, I, I thanks very much. Thank you.